Okay, as all of you recognize by now, I trust, this is the tabernacle. And I'm going to try again. We're going to look at the various tribes as they tamp, tra- uh, camped around the tabernacle as a review. And remember first, Judah here with Issachar and Zebulun. <clears throat> then you have Reuben here. Um, let me fill in a couple others here. Then we have um, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, and then Dad, Dan, um, Naphtali, and Asher. And that leaves me here with Gad and Simeon. Now, the priests count closest to the entrance of the ark and Moses count with them. Uh, then you have um, Kohath, um, Is it Gershon next? Okay, I paused on that one. And Merari. Now, um, go ahead and ask that question you asked just a second ago, Karen, because some other person may have gotten that confused. If you okay. Well, so in the kids' class yesterday, we were talking about the offspring of Moses. And Moses' son was Gershom. Mm-hmm. Um so I was trying to make sure that I was understanding the context yes. of this versus. So th- these are Levi's sons. These are Levi's three sons: Kohath, Gershon, and Merari, and the families are divided up via that. But um, so Moses and Aaron, do they? Are we told they fall into one of those? Or? Mo- Aaron, of course, is with the priest. Moses would not generally be, but he is. He's mentioned there in. Chapter four somewhere. Uh, I think it's around verse uh, thirty-four to thirty-eight that it's mentioned in the Maybe thirty-eight, thirty-nine. Look there and see if that's where it talks about where Moses came. Okay. Now, what did each each of these Levites groups of Levites carried something? Um, well. At least these three descendants. What did Kohath carry when they when they count from place to place? What did they carry? The holy object. The holy objects, the furniture, the ark of the covenant, the table of bread, things of that nature. That's what they carried. Gershon carried, and I know this does get really difficult. They carried more things like the curtains. And as they were moved from place to place, Merari carried the actual planks and boards. Now, one of the reasons I mentioned that again, I mentioned that again because, first of all, we, we don't see it a whole lot. And just remind us, and we've spent about four chapters that deal with this. But also a lot of all the responsibilities of the Levites 
that have been described so far are either guarding this house or moving this house. What's going to happen when the day comes that the house doesn't need to be moved? You get a lot of Levites who aren't doing a whole lot, don't you? But that's when we see David assign them to different duties in worship. For example, First Chronicles 23 uh, will even make that. So turn your Bibles to First Chronicles chapter 23. First Chronicles chapter 23. David did not actually build the temple, but he sure did do a lot in preparing the personnel to serve there. Uh, listen, beginning in verse 25, 1 Chronicles 23. David said, The Lord God of Israel has given rest to his people, and he dwells in Jerusalem forever. Also the Levites will no longer need to carry the tabernacle and all its utensils for its service. For by the last words of David, the sons of Levi were numbered from 20 years old and upward. And verse 28 talks about how they assist the sons of Aaron in service of the house of God. Um, The book of Chronicles mentions the Levites repeatedly. But what happens in chapter 25, some of the Levites serve as temple singers. In chapter 26, some of the Levites serve as gatekeepers. But one of the reasons that's a dividing point is because they're given the land and they don't move from place to place within the land. Just trying to to fit a little bit of this into the whole story of the Bible. But that's just fitting a little bit in. Uh, Did anyone have a question on things that we may have overlooked from 1 through 4 the other night? Or things that you had questions about? Sarah? Um, So... Aaron and Moses were from the family of Kohath, but they're considered separate, right? Uh, yes, yes. They are, and you see their genealogy in Exodus 6, beginning about verse 14. You see their genealogy, particularly Aaron, is focused on, but of course they're brothers. So, so yes, they would have been, but, but they're, they're, because of Aaron, in the priest, they're a separate category. Right now, not a very populated one, but, you know, by the time of Zacharias, when he burns incense in the temple, there were so many priests that burning incense in the temple was probably a once-in-a-life experience, maybe a couple of times. So so there will there will get to be many of them, though they're not at this particular point. Okay. Let's look into Numbers chapter 5. I also want, right now, the concern about the various tribes, I will erase this lest we need more room for writing. But I want to keep the tabernacle right where it was, in the center of the camp. Because the, the key thing about this is the Lord is dwelling with His people. The Lord is dwelling with His people. That is a very important concept, but it also demands a certain holiness of the people. 
And Numbers chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the sons of Israel that they send away from the camp every leper and everyone having a discharge and everyone who is unclean because of a dead person. You shall send away both male and female. You shall send them outside the camp so they will not defile the camp where I dwell in their midst. The sons of Israel did so and sent them outside the camp just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Thus the sons of Israel did. Okay. So God says, I dwell in the midst of the camp. And as we talked about Wednesday night, the tabernacle is a kind of Garden of Eden, or the Garden of Eden is a kind of tabernacle, as God and man are dwelling together. And we we use the vocabulary of Numbers 3, verses 7 and 8 in order to establish that. Now, God dwells among the people, he says in 5.3. This was his goal when he gives the blessings of the covenant in Leviticus 26, in verses 11 and 12, that he's going to dwell among the people. In Numbers chapter 35, when the Bible is talking about the cities of refuge, he says in verse 34, Numbers 35.34, you shall not defile the land in which you live in in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. God dwells in the midst of Israel. Therefore, in these verses, because of this, uncleanness is sent out of the camp. Uncleanness is sent, sent out. You're not allowed, if you're unclean, to be dwelling in the camp. Now, he gives three categories here. What are the three categories that he gives us in verse 2 of people who are unclean? Leper. Okay. A leper. Those having a discharge. Those having a discharge. And those who've come in contact with who? Dead bodies. Okay, with dead bodies. So all of these um, are rendered unclean. Yes. Why does my uh, version, verse 2, have the word dead in italics? If that had to be added, it seems kind of odd. The word that is used here is often translated corpse, but... But not always, not one hundred percent of the time, and so uh, that does that is pretty fundamental. And I have to acknowledge I didn't, yeah, but it's true here, and I didn't even see that. So that's a good point. But that word is not one hundred percent of the time translated corpse, and so that would be in this context. I think that's a safe, safe uh, extension. Now. The term lepers, probably more extensive than that. Um, we think of leprosy as a terrible, debilitating disease. 
understand the Bible included more things among that, like uh, things like psoriasis, which are not life threatening, uh, but you know they were included in it. Look, if you go back to some of the notes on Leviticus thirteen, which some of you told me was the was the best sermon. Uh, best class on leprosy y'all ever had here, um, but um, <laughs> but that shows it's a little bit more extensive. Are any of these things, though, and this is an important question, are they inherently sinful? No. And there, there's an uncleanness that is sinful that we're going to talk about, Lord willing, about the adultery test. But these things are not in and of themselves sinful. But let's talk about some of the passages that deal with them. If you want to make your notes, Leviticus 13 and 14 deal with the, un, the, um, the leprosy. Now, can you think of... There's another case in the book of Numbers where someone gets leprosy. And they're forced to dwell outside the camp. Christy, who is that? Miriam. And we'll read about that in Numbers 12, particularly verse 10 and verses 14 through 15. Now, another story about leprosy in the Old Testament. It's an absolutely great story. What's that? Gehazi. No, wait. You said who? Yeah. Gehazi. Yes. Yeah, yes, yes. But it's a couple of chapters. That, that is one. But but this one relates to where they were dwelling. But it's a couple of chapters after that. Do you remember the four lepers who were who were not going into the city, and they didn't go in. And they said, if we go into the city, famine is there. And so that they they eventually go to the camp of the Amorites. If you're not familiar with that story in 2 Kings 7, just let me encourage you to read it. I know that that was a story in freshman Bible that kept people... I mean, people were on the edge of their seat. I think it's because it's a really good story that you don't hear much. And some of them probably had not heard it that often. But in I believe it's 2 Kings 7, 3, that seems to indicate they were observing that regulation by staying outside the camp. Now, a discharge is dealt with in Leviticus 15, Leviticus 22, uh, verse, I believe it is verse 3, also emphasizes that... Uh, that you were sent outside the camp. Um, okay. Um, I'm not seeing it in my notes, but I think it's Leviticus 22, about verses 3 and 4, that mentions that. And then contact with the dead. And we're going to get, um, in Leviticus 21, we're told this by the priest could only defile himself for certain people, the high priest for others. And we're going to get a dose of this in number six when we talk about the Nazarites. Now, what if none of these things were sin? Um, Why would they have made you unclean and why would you have been excluded from the camp? 
We ask this question a lot in Leviticus, but let me ask it again. Was being unclean itself a sin? No. Of course, we, we principle kind of dealt with that. It's not itself a sin. In the course of life, people become unclean. But what, what's trying, what's demonstrated? God's holiness. Okay, God's holiness certainly that He is dwelling among the people. And the standards of holiness have to be kept. Um, I, I would... Understanding God's holiness. Understanding how awesome He is. I think also that while uncleanness is not a sin, while it's not a sin, it is kind of a picture of sin in the Old Testament. It's a picture of sin. And therefore, while these things are not sinful in and of themselves, and and you mentioned Gehazi an example a moment ago, he does get leprosy as a result of sin. Sometimes you see things like that in Scripture. But uh, the point that I'm trying to stress it's a picture of sin and it's not unclean. Um, it's a picture of sin, not of sin itself. Okay. How would you show, what would you go to if someone asked you, listen, are we to keep these laws today? What, what would you appeal to? Colossians 3. Colossians 3, uh, are you thinking of 2? Maybe I'm thinking of 2. Yeah. Um, I, I would particularly, even before that, which which I think you can make a point with that, that John is, is stating with, John, with Colossians 2, but just the fact that Jesus heals all of these, and Jesus heals all of these in a way that would have made him unclean. He touches the lepers, the woman with a discharge, and anything she touches is become becomes unclean. She touches him, and immediately she is healed. When Jesus raises Jairus' daughter, every gospel account that records it tells us he took her by the hand. I think the text is making a point that Jesus transcends that uncleanness. And I think because of that, we can understand passages like Colossians chapter 2 to reach and to apply to that. Um, but the fact that uncleanness is a picture of sin, let me go to a couple of New Testament passages. Uh, look at 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6 is the passage that beginning with verse 14 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Do not be bound with unbelievers. And he goes on to describe what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness, what fellowship is light with darkness. And in verse 16, the Lord said, I will dwell among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Probably a reference to Leviticus 26, 11 and 12, which we already have on the board. Look at verse 17. Therefore, because God is dwelling among the people, 
Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you. Do not touch. Again, uncleanness is a picture of sin. God is dwelling among the people. And Paul uses these Old Testament exhortations about avoiding what's unclean to try to encourage Christians to pursue holiness. Look at chapter 7, verse 1, 2 Corinthians. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. The words cleanse and defile are filled. uh, They're all through the book of Numbers and Leviticus. And cleanse ourselves from all defilement. Point, this is a picture. It is a picture of God dwelling with His people. One more passage. One more passage to establish this. 2 Corinthians 6. We point out particularly verse 17, chapter 7, verse 1. Look in Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. The tabernacle of God is with men. It's among men. He's going to dwell among them. He's going to be their God. We're going to be His people. Because God is dwelling with us, look at verse 27. Verse 27, Nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written uh, in the Lamb's book of life. Because God dwells in the midst of the people, because He's tabernacling among them, no uncleanness will enter there. So really, in a sense, this tabernacle traveling through the wilderness is a picture of heaven, isn't it? It's a picture of heaven. Now, at the same time, while that tells us about God's holiness, it may leave us hopeless at first look. But you look at Revelation 7, these people here, this multitude, why are they here? Because they've had their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. It tells us that to get to heaven, we all need forgiveness. We all need forgiveness. Now, I apologize for something. I am not surveying my time well, and I did not mean to spend 25 minutes on the first four verses. But do you have, in spite of that, do you have a question? Christy, uh, would you want to read 5, back in Numbers chapter 5. Let's read verses 5 through 10. And um, we're going to talk about these briefly. I may, I'm asking you to read. I may want to write and to conserve a little time here as you're reading. But go ahead. Okay, that's fine. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any of the sins that the people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess the sin that he has committed. And he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it, and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. 
But if the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for wrong shall go to the Lord uh, for the priest in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. And every contribution, all the holy donations of the people of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. Each one shall keep his holy donation. Whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. Okay, very good. Do you recognize from Leviticus this kind of language about acting unfaithfully, making full restitution plus 20%, plus one-fifth, and a ram of atonement. Can you think of which sacrifice in the Old Testament this applied to? Five basic types of sacrifice in Leviticus 5 and 6. In Leviticus uh, Leviticus 1, burnt offering, grain offering. Leviticus 2, Leviticus 3, peace offering. Then you have the sin offering and the guilt offering. Which did this most closely parallel? It really ties in pretty well with the guilt or trespass offering. The guilt or trespass offering that is described in Leviticus 5, 14 to 6, 7. The ram was the only offering that could be offered here. And it was a ram um, of atonement. And you paid back what you took and you added a fifth to it, added 20% to it. The crime described in that passage was acting unfaithfully. If you look at the notes that were sent out this morning, it will give you specific verses in Leviticus 5 that touch upon all of this. Now, Leviticus 6, verses 1 through 5, goes into more kind of detail as far as what kind of crimes were particularly under discussion. I think in this particular passage, the call, one thing that is new here is this call in verse 1, or excuse me, in verse 7, to confess sins. A call to confess sins. I think the this is a call basically for people to come clean, to acknowledge their sins, to cast themselves upon God's mercy for God's forgiveness. I think this is what the purpose of this was. A purpose, a person may take something, he may... Um, he may eventually swear an oath falsely and be dishonest about it. His conscience bothers him. He makes restitution plus a fifth and then offers an animal for atonement. Now, this is not stated specifically in the text. But I think we can imply it. We're talking about this group of people traveling in the wilderness and God dwelling with them in their midst. I don't know if I should say this, but I want to for illustrative purposes. Okay? Both in my time as a student and as a teacher, probably a lot of people who deserve to get kicked out of school who didn't get kicked out. But I'll tell you something that they were kicked out for every time if they were found guilty. 
is stealing. Every time. Because if you steal and you're all living together there in close quarters, that's just not going to work, is it? And that's the situation here. Israel is dwelling together, close together, traveling as a band throughout the wilderness. It will undermine unity. It will undermine peace. It will undermine any sense of camaraderie (coughs) if one steals from another. And therefore, it is a serious crime. And I think that's the same thing that we see here. Anything else that you... You see, I don't mean to rush past all of this. I am excited to, to talk about this adultery test. But there seems to be some emphasis on this this and other things belonging to the priest as well in, in this section. Was that intended to be an emphasis or did I just... Okay, that sense? emphasis is made after... It, it, first of all, he pays this restitution to any... In the family. Now, I do not think Leviticus five and Leviticus seven make that clear. But he make he pays the restitution to the person he wronged. If the person he wronged died, he pays further down in the family. If there's none of them to pay to, he, he gives it to the priest, as John talked about in verse eight. And I think then this general this general statement about the priest is made in verses nine and ten, kind of just to emphasize the importance of the people uh, recognizing what belongs to the priest and what God has set aside for them. Because the priest was to receive this money, if there was no heir to receive it. As a result, he uses this, it seems like, as a, as, a, as a sounding point or a starting point to just mention the provision for the priest. Is, does that answer what you were asking, John? It does, thanks. Okay. Okay. Yes, Sarah? I was going to write down a couple of New Testament verses about restitution, by the way. Go ahead. So, should I be thinking also here of, like, Malachi and the people robbing God and... The the emphasis that you know what you've given to the priest belongs to the priest, and that's in one sense what you've given to God and, and robbing God and stealing. Is yeah. there a connection there, or am I crazy? No, no, I don't think that's. I think that's a it's a connection. I think first of all, this is dealing with crimes right. against one another and against the Lord. Uh, in a more in taking something that doesn't belong to you, but there, the, what you are speaking of is talked about as robbing God. It is more that they are not giving as they are blessed. But I, no, I, I think you're on the right point. I, I, I just would emphasize that here they're probably taking something that doesn't belong to them in this case. In some cases, it was done unawares, like a person ate something that was supposed to be dedicated to the priest. And he wasn't really even aware of that. And then after he does it, he makes restitution. I think that's stated in Leviticus 22, around verse 14 or so. Okay, any other comments? Okay, the adultery test. Did this strike you all as strange or odd? Uh, On what basis? I mean, it may strike you as strange, but it may strike me as strange for a different reason. Um, why why did it strike you as strange? 
Voodoo. <laughs> yeah, that's the reason it strikes me as strange. You know, it seems like you got to say this spell and you got to drink this water and this will be the result. Um, so, yes, it, it does. Now, I want to tell you, why does it fit here? Why does this fit here in context? And I lost uh, my eraser. Okay. Why does it fit here? Why stick this here verse somewhere else? One of the reasons is because there are a couple of vocabulary links with previous sections. Remember what chapter 5 verse 3 said. Chapter 5 verse 3 is said, it said you send away male and female, you send them outside the camp so that you do not defile their camp. Do not But it speaks of defiling, and I don't know if I spelled that right, the camp in 5.3. How many times are we going to read through this the words defile or does not defile or defiles? But the word defile or defiles I have down in these verses in 13. Twice in verse 14, in verse 20, verse 27, verse 28, and verse 29. Now, if these things which were not even inherently sinful were defiling, how much more an act that is specifically sinful? How much more defiling is it? So that's one connection. Also, another connection with the context. Uh, Let's just go to this word here. It is said that when you took something that you shouldn't from someone else and then took a false oath about it, that you were acting unfaithfully in 5 verse 6. That same, those same words, or that same word is used in description of the adultery described in this passage in verse 12 and in verse 17. Just as chapter 5 verses 5 through 10 discussed the condition where people acted unfaithfully, so this does as well. This passage does also. Now here are some key concepts. The word goes astray. The word unfaithful. A man has intercourse with her or sleeps with her, depending on your version. The word defile or defiles. The word jealousy is a key. An offering of jealousy. Stand before the Lord. Waters of bitterness. All these phrases are significant. Now, let's see a little of what happens. In verse 11, the Lord spoke to Moses. Same phrase in verse 1, verse 5, now in verse 11. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, If a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, a man has had has intercourse with her or sleeps with her, as the New International Version says. Now notice in the rest of verse 12, the rest of verse 13, there are going to be four different expressions to indicate that there are no eyewitnesses here. 
A man has slept with her, but it is hidden from the eyes of her husband. And she is undetected, although she has defiled herself. There is no witness against her, and she has not been caught in the act. Four different ways that it's stated that she's committed adultery, or she seems to have committed adultery, but there is no witness no one has called them. The husband has been unaware of it. In verse 14, if this spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife when she has defiled herself, or if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife when she has not defiled herself. Verse 14 presents two options that will continue to be played out within the text. One, she is guilty. Two, she is innocent. If someone made such a serious charge and you were innocent, wouldn't you in some way want your innocence proved? Beyond a shadow of a doubt. And this does this. This convicts the guilty. While it also exonerates the innocent. Now, what was done in this particular ceremony? In verse 15, The man shall then bring his wife to the priest, and he shall bring as an offering for her one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. He shall not pour oil on it, nor put frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of memorial, a reminder of iniquity. Now, this grain offering is of barley. There was one offering in Israel that was exclusively a non-meat sacrifice. And that was the grain offering. There is a different word that is used to describe that grain offering. It is said to be a fine flour. In most translations, worded that way. And that is a word all through Leviticus 2. Fine flour. The word barley is used here in connection with sacrifice. Now, I want to qualify this statement properly. This is the only time in the Pentateuch, in the first five books, that the word barley is used with the sacrificial system. It's used a couple of other times. But it doesn't deal with what is brought as a sacrifice. So the kind of grain that is brought here is different. What is the significance of that? I'm not exactly sure. Except that barley was sometimes identified with the poorest of the people. Remember the dream the man in Midian has of a barley loaf coming into the camp? and destroying the camp in Judges 7, and the barley loaf represents Gideon. 
seems to be that the barley loaf is mentioned there in the sense that Gideon's a nobody who is destroying our camp. But also the Bible says, with this grain offering, you don't put oil on it, you don't put frankincense on it. Now, oil and frankincense are mentioned prominently with the grain offering in Leviticus 2. There is only one sacrifice in the Old Testament from which, which was a grain sacrifice from which you withheld oil and frankincense. And that's in Leviticus 5, Leviticus 5, verses 11 through 13, where they made a provision for a sin offering of the poorest of the people. They were too poor to afford birds And so as a result, they brought a grain offering and they did not put oil or frankincense on it. Leviticus 5, verses 11 through 13. Does this point to... What does that point to? What does it all mean? I think one of the things it demonstrates is this is not a joyous occasion. Certainly. And oil and frankincense were often associated with that. The priest shall bring her near and have her stand before the Lord. This is verse 16. Numbers 5 verse 16. And the, verse 17, the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel and he shall take some of the dust from the floor of the tabernacle and put it in the water. Now, I know when you first read this, this sounds terrible. I will say, and I see you know, Katie and Kyle grimacing back there a little bit, but uh, it will not sound as strange to you after you have children, I'll tell you that. Um, and you'll know that a little dust isn't going to kill them. It's The danger is not in dust in itself, but what is the significance of the dust taken from the tabernacle floor? All of this is significant. As we say, it's the holiest dust in the camp. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I think the whole point is this is truly holy dust. Now, dust sometimes in the Bible has to deal with sin. I, excuse me, like from dust you are to dust you shall return. Sin and death in Genesis three nineteen. But I do think this is with holiness. It's not that this little dust is going to kill you. But the place it's taken from is all important. And I think very that's very easy to interpret in the midst of this. That you take this water and in verse 18 of Numbers 5, you let the hair of the woman's head go loose. The leper was said in Leviticus 13, verses 45 and 46, not to cover his hair. Again, is this connect? Sometimes not covering your hair is connected with mourning. In Leviticus ten or six, with Aaron and his sons, his surviving sons, is the point here that this is mourning, that this is a profoundly serious moment. So he places the grain offering in her hand, and in the hand of the priest, and. 
the water of bitterness is there. And, and he states in verse 19, this verse 19, the possibility she's innocent. The priest shall have her take an oath and say to the woman, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone astray in uncleanness, being under the authority of your husband, be immune from this water of bitterness that brings a curse. And verse 28 says, it emphasizes again her innocence. If the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, she will then be free and conceive children. So, that's one possibility that she's innocent. But in verses 22 through 20, 20 through 22 is the possibility that she is guilty. Um, if she has gone astray, if you have defiled yourself and a man other than your husband had intercourse with you or lie with you, then verse 21 and picking up in the middle, the Lord make you a curse, an oath among your people by the Lord making your thigh waste away and your abdomen swell. Now, First of all, we do read of rites like this in other ancient Near Eastern documents. The Hammurabi uh, law code uh, describes a situation where someone throws themselves in the river and if they're innocent, they uh, survive. If they're guilty, they drown. Um, Usually those law codes have something that's inherently dangerous that I just know I wouldn't have survived anyway. Throw me into a river that's running and I'm going to be seen as a guilty man because I'm not going to survive the experience. And they usually had things that were inherently dangerous. This is not inherently dangerous. There's a difference. But I know what John was saying earlier. It sounds like a little mumbo-jumbo. It sounds like a little magic. But in a certain sense, wouldn't an unbeliever look at sacrifice that way in the Old Testament? Or even look at baptism that way today? We believe the power was not in the water and the power was not in the magic words said by the priest. The power was in the God who sees everyone and knows who's guilty and who's innocent and will vindicate the innocent and convict the guilty. Why this ceremony? I don't know how many times this played out in the history of Israel. We don't read of any specifically. But it may have happened quite often. I I do not know. Don't you imagine if people saw it, they would get the idea that marital faithfulness is important. That it would visually demonstrate this truth that God is conveying. That it is a serious wrong. That it is acting unfaithfully. That it is defiling yourself. When you commit such a wrong and such a sin, that, that it, is, it is profoundly serious. Today, because of where the Sermon on the Mount falls, this was not 
uh, scheduled by me from this standpoint, but we'll talk about adultery in a sermon. Talk about adultery in a sermon. Talk about adultery in a Bible class. And tonight, probably build upon Matthew 5, 31 and 32 about marriage and adultery. So, but God is graphically portraying how important this is. And, and one of the writers I looked at on Numbers said this. And think about it. It's so obvious, but so true. The foundations of our society depend upon marital fidelity. And I could show you all kinds of people, and I could show you all kinds of people who are Christians, who were faithful to their maid, and the greatest difficulty they've ever faced in life is because their maid became unfaithful. It was a financial burden. It was an emotional burden. It, it, it just absolutely devastated them. It's very important that we remember God's principles in this particular respect. Do any of you all have a good question that we might want to answer Wednesday? If you've got a good question on this, I might need to think about it beforehand. I'll be honest with you. Uh, if you come up with one, feel free to ask. Anybody got one right now? Craig? Uh, so we haven't gotten there yet. Verse 31, I'm curious to know who the man is that he's referring to. I think the man is the husband that's making this accusation. And I think it's stating that he is, if this woman is found guilty, he is not held responsible. I don't think this is necessarily a statement that if she is found innocent, that no blame comes to him. Now, in today's culture, too, and and I don't know if I may address this further, we'll see what, what you think. In today's culture, what are people going to say about that passage? It's sexist. Sexist. Yeah. You know, we she don't have a blamed. we don't have appropriate te- for 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 appropriate tests for man. You don't have a parallel test. Well, is again, we're dealing with God's word. So either our definition of sexism is wrong, or else um, we're not understanding <coughs> the text right, or something. And probably all of the above. Um, but just think about how it would fall into that. Are there ever cases in the Old Testament where a man did something or didn't do something and only men were held responsible and not women? Think about that as well. So we're going to try to get to number six about the Nazarites next time. And uh, But thank you for your careful attention.